I'm ready. Lord, we just pray for him. I just ask in Jesus' name for his body, his mind, his own spirit, his family. We pray your lovely covering over him today. We just thank you for his ministry, this faithful man of God, for so long in so many ways, Lord, to the Vineyard Movement and way beyond and to our church and to hundreds of churches like ours. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. 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 Thanks, Mike. Well, it's great to be back with you. Um, I come about once a year, and uh, I always find this church to be uniquely hungry and receptive, so that's really good. And as I look around, I saw a few faces from many years ago when, uh, when we were at Anaheim Vineyard together, and a few from Saddleback Valley Vineyard, and the rest of you I know maybe a little more distantly, but um, you went to maybe Ed Peoric's church, and now you're here, and I walked in this morning, I thought, well, COVID's over, because last year when I came, it was a lot smaller crowd, so... It's good to be moving beyond COVID. Um, So this morning, I want to talk about something that I think is near and dear to the hearts of most people that would be here, Um, and it's living in the realm of God. And uh, that's not exactly language we commonly use, and it almost sounds a little bit New Agey, but I promise you I'm not going to become a New Age guy. if you haven't noticed, uh, the world of the church has changed dramatically. Uh, I could even say in the last five years, but more broadly in the last 20 or so. And uh, Christianity has come to mean lots of different things to lots of different people. There's a lot of, um, I think the proper word is disparate teaching out there, which maybe historically wouldn't have even qualified as Christian. And um, there there seems to be in some ways a a further breaking down of uh, whatever synthesis or unity there was within Christendom over the last, you know, 2,000 years. Just a small, short period of time. But... um, Richard Foster, some of you would know his name. Uh, He wrote a book called The Celebration of Discipline. He had another one, The Freedom of Simplicity. Uh, He comes out of a Quaker tradition, which you go back far enough, that's some of the roots of the Vineyard Movement. And he talked about four primary uh, traditions or practices within Christianity, meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. And although it's an imperfect analogy, each of these four emphases tracks in some ways to the four great traditions of the Christian faith. The meditative tradition probably is closest to the sacrament-centered tradition of the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. Um, I mean, you practice communion here, you practice baptism, but I think it's safe to say the sacraments are not the absolute dead center of the worship service in a church like this. That's just because it's a different emphasis within this stream. It's it's not saying it's bad or good. I'm just helping you understand the way it is. And for those of you that came out of, well, it'd be more Catholic than Orthodox around here, but there might be a few that maybe you were Greek Orthodox or Syrian Orthodox or, dare we mention it, Russian Orthodox. Um, You know, those kinds of traditions. uh, For sure, the sacrament 
of communion or the Eucharist is, the, I mean, that's the high point of the worship service. If we go on the prayer side, well, this is the contemplative tradition, and this is really where a lot of the mystical teaching in the church comes from. It's interesting, in our time, we have a lot of people who are becoming more and more mystical, which could be good or maybe isn't. It depends how it gets done. Um, but through long centuries of church history, and most people aren't aware of this and they don't really know where to even go to source the right documents, but there were people who were viewed as key leaders in the church who were viewed as mystics. We could think of people like, well, one of my favorites, Hildegard of Bingen, not that you would necessarily know who Hildegard was, uh, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross. Somebody's putting up their hand in the very back. So, um, but, but generally we don't talk about these people too much, but there are places within Christendom where people are thinking about that. So within the kind of third and fourth wave renewal streams, which this church represents, uh, people are remaking mysticism, and it's, it's a little bit unfortunate that it isn't you know, connected to some of what was there, in, say, 500 or 1,000 years ago in the mystical traditions. But point being, there is this mystical tradition. And then there's the spirit-centered tradition. This is where we land, charismatic and Pentecostal. Um, and I, I'm kind of tying this to the fasting side of things, although a lot of charismatic churches, they fast, but they may not have a, like a hard line, you know, let's really get after it. Um, they might do a fast every year, and usually it's a Daniel fast. And uh, it tends to be 21 days, not 40, and on and on. So we, we've kind of figured out ways to, to work with the fasting issue. And then the study tradition, this one doesn't need much commentary. This is the word-centered tradition that's in the Bible. And uh, the, the evangelical mainstream really represents that. And so these are kind of our four big streams. There is one other one which has always kind of floated around a bit, um, and it's the justice-centered tradition. And uh, historically, anyway, this would have been embodied by the mainstream Protestant churches, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, uh, the Episcopalians, Congregationalists, people like this. In our time, uh, and really particularly since 2020, with the murder of George Floyd, um, the justice stream has, has merged pretty strongly with most of the other streams, and this represents a rediscovery of something that's always been right there in the pages of scripture that perhaps was de-emphasized. So I don't know where to put that one. It's a fifth one, but it, it kind of covers all of them. Well, so these are the, these are the historical streams of, of the church. Um, and in our present day, and as I said, the church has changed a bit and is changing uh, in the last five or seven years and going back maybe 20 years, we've seen a lot of change. And I've noticed in the conversation in my travels uh, people talking about new realms of God. And you may not have heard it in exactly that verbiage. It depends on what country you're in, but that's a good catch-all phrase that sweeps up all the other variants of the language. And most of this involves trying to connect with God in uh, ways that are new and unique, um, it involves ways that are sometimes you might call them mystical or charismatic. Sometimes it happens through sacramental experiences or prayer. 
uh, but people are, are really hard after this new realms of God. I see it most, most commonly when I'm among um, third and fourth wave churches, charismatic churches. And it depends on who you're talking with and what they're propounding. But in general, they want to take all of this and make it normative. And sometimes I think it, it may be for the wider body to become normative. And other times it's just what one person experiences with God. It's their own private encounter. And maybe it's not meant to be um, scattered hither and yon. But anyway, as this kind of teaching advances, um, it's actually creating some breaches within the various streams of the church that I've already described. And the, the scripture admonishes us to keep unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so we want to be careful that this doesn't ultimately become something that's divisive. Um, even when our brothers or sisters are experiencing what we ourselves have not, or conversely, when we're experiencing things they have not. Well, this is 2022, so about nine or maybe eight years ago as I was traveling, particularly in the, in the southern Pacific area, New Zealand, Australia, Indonesia, um, I started to see this divergence as I traveled around. And as 2014 came, so this is now eight years ago, but of course we've lost nearly three years to COVID. So in terms of you know, practical time frame, I guess it's only about five years ago. Um, I started feeling a real urgency about this, and, I, and particularly in Australia, I started warning a lot of the leaders of the churches of this divergent trend, and most of them were unaware that it was coming, and they, I don't know if they knew, well, some of them thought I'd maybe a little bit off. But I was concerned because I thought the churches weren't really ready for what was coming at them. And as I think about it, when I think about unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, when I think about how does the church present a credible witness to the world, as I think about how are we more like our Catholic brothers and sisters than less, how are we more like our mainstream Protestant, liberal Protestant brothers and sisters than less. I mean, I recognize there are differences, and I know that on many levels we would have sharp disagreements, whether theologically or practically, I'm aware. But, but nevertheless, if, if they are naming the name of Christ, how, what, what do we do to present a unified face? Because, as they say, united we stand and divided we fall. And so I think the answer to all this lies in emphasizing what is measurable, and what is tangible rather than what is subjective. Now, I'm all for subjective experiences. I'm all for encounters with God. Um, the vineyard has a very strong tradition of this, and it goes back to the very beginning. And I don't think it's going away anytime soon. But I do want to bring us back to tangibility, at least this morning, just to think about what does this mean for our own experience of the Lord because um, when we talk about things that are measurable and tangible, this is how we build that idea of common experience. And so the Apostle Paul said, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's really at, at the center of what is, is burdening me uh, this morning. And I'll say, I, you know, I did an event with Francis Chan uh, last summer at IHOP. And Francis and I have continued our conversation since then. And I've, I've, I've really been impressed with how earnest Francis is about wanting to find that place uh, where all Christians can 
commonly gather around a table, notwithstanding our other differences. Does that make sense? I don't want you to think I'm becoming you know, the great ecumenical heretic. Well, with all that in mind, um, I was thinking about this morning, and I, I want to share with you from Psalm 15. And uh, as I said, we're going to call this sermon Living in Realms of God. And it, it says this in Psalm 15, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, that's an interesting question. David is contemplating a question. And when he says sojourn in your tents, to sojourn means to dwell. And, of course, in David's time, they didn't have a temple. They had a tabernacle. It was mobile. I wouldn't say it was immediately mobile. It was a big enough thing that, you know, breaking it down and moving it was probably, you know, an all-day affair. And then you'd carry it to wherever you were going to carry it, and you'd set it up. But the point is, if we're in the tabernacle of the Lord, this is where the presence dwells. This is where we are connecting with God in whatever form we're doing that, whether it's sacramentally through the worship process, excuse me, the sacrificial process. And again, this would kind of track to those that are more sacramental. Um, So it could be through the sacrificial process of offering up animals. It could be in prayer. Uh, Certainly Isaiah had experiences like this. Samuel had one in his own calling. And then he says, who shall dwell on your holy hill? And I think for a lot of people who want to go on with the Lord, they they want to be deeper with the Lord. They want to be more connected. And they want God to seem more real to them in every dimension. They want to have God's solutions to all the problems in their life. They they want to feel like they're, they're fully and completely interactive with the Lord. But of course, all of us know that there are times that seems to be the case, and then other times maybe not as much. David is thinking about this problem. And so when we think about this, who can dwell in your tabernacle? Who can be in your presence? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And he uses that language elsewhere. He says, who can dwell on your holy hill here? But in Psalm 24, just a couple chapters away or psalms away, he does say, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in the holy place? And of course, it's in that place that we have our our experiences with God. But interestingly, this is also the place where that, that Christian unity that I was mentioning a few moments ago really arises. And so David reflects on all this, and he lists 10 conditions. And he says, these are the necessary conditions to be connected with God in this way. Not not sufficient, not good enough on their own. If you don't have these, it's going to fall apart. It's not going to work. So for some of you, you may be wondering, wow, how do I have a more authentic Christian experience and one that is in the best sense of the word ecumenical? How do I do that? Where do I go with that? And David answers that question in this psalm. So I think this is a very relevant psalm for our time. It's a now word, if you want to put it that way. So the first thing he says is, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, He who does these things shall never be moved. Well, how about that? You'll never be moved off the hill of the Lord. You'll never be moved out of the tabernacle of the Lord. 
So this is a key to the abiding presence. This is a key to that ongoing flow of, of power and anointing. It's also the key to connecting more broadly and presenting that unified face to the world that Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer. So let's look at these things. First of all, he who walks blamelessly. This is in verse 2. Now, this could have a lot of different meanings to it, but I think the best way to understand it is we become scrupulous in our practice of Christianity. And we live in a time where I'm not sure scruple is even a word that's left in our vocabulary. It's certainly not true in the political sphere. And, of course, that bleeds over into many other spheres. Um, but I, sadly, I don't like saying this, but I sadly have seen uh, more than a few Christians who are not scrupulous about their own walk with the Lord. Paul says this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, Keep a close watch on yourself. Now, I'm reading an ESV translation. If you read it in NIV, he would say, watch your lifestyle closely and on the teaching. So it's not only how you live, it's what you say, what you propound, what you advocate for. And he says, persist in this. So stay, stay with it. Don't just do it for a week or two or a day or two. Don't just throw it out as a you know, tagline somewhere, but actually embed it into the way you live your life. And by doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, for Timothy, this is particularly apt because he's, we would say, a bishop or an overseer of the church in Ephesus at this time. But the point is, this is how leaders, one of the ways that leaders stay clean and powerful in the Lord. And it's one of the ways that the church stays clean and powerful in the Lord because actually the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So we watch our own words and our own life, and that means a lot of things, and, and I'm just going to give you a few ideas here. I'm trying in, actually to be somewhat broad rather than very specific, because if I get too specific, somebody's going to think I'm fingering them, and they'll say I'm being a legalist. And I don't want to be a legalist, but I do, I do want to let this land near enough that you're kind of like, Ooh, well, that was kind of close. Maybe there's something hanging out there that I need to... Pull it in a bit. So Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything other than this comes from the evil one. Are you scrupulous with your words such that what you say is true and can be taken at face value? Christians are called to be people like that. Not that they leave something unsaid. Well, they'll figure it out if, if they get around to it. And if they don't, well... Okay, good. We got away with that one. You know, I, when I was in corporate America, we always used to say, well, not every company said this, but the best ones I worked for. <clears throat> they said, we want to live by the Wall Street Journal test. You might say, what's that? Well, if this that we're talking about right here were to show up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, would we be okay with that? And I think, I think that's a pretty good way to measure our own words, what we say and not just what we say, but how we say it. And watch your life closely. So there's no fault to be found in our lifestyle. Again, the Wall Street Journal test, or the Vineyard Tattler test, if you prefer that one. Uh, but if this were to come out, how would this land uh, in the minds of other believers? I know there are some people that are, I don't know, they're a little over the top. 
but I'm talking about for sensible, fair-minded people who live their lives according to the dictates of Scripture. It, this is a simple test in some ways, but it's a lot harder to live than you might realize. Because in the press of life, we're often, well, we're often put into positions where we, we maybe don't want to say the truth, or we do make those little compromises. And as the old saying goes, little compromises often lead to big compromises. And if you think about people that have you know, fallen over, over the years, and we can, think, we can think back to, oh, I don't know, the televangelist scandal of the 1980s, where a lot of really high-profile ministries fell. And then there was another round of it that came in the 90s. Um, and who knows? I mean, every now and then these things just sort of seem to erupt. But that happens because of this matter of where are we with living and walking blamelessly. And so this is nothing more or less than the rediscovery of holy living. And I know holy living is a little out of favor these days, and when you say it, people think you're talking about something that's, I don't know, filled with bondage and all that. But there's a joy in holiness. There's a beauty in holiness. And the Scripture actually tells us, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So in your desire to, to model to the world around you and to your Christian brothers and sisters, are you so committed to living a righteous life? And I don't mean self-righteous. I mean a righteous life, as the Lord describes it, that, that you might actually make some big sacrifices and let go of some things that you really like to do or lifestyle choices. Would you be willing to do that, as they say, for the sake of Jesus? And I'm reminded of something John Wimber used to say, I'm like a sieve, I leak. And we all leak. We all leak holiness. And after a while, what was holy is no longer holy. It's common and defiled. And so we need to fill it up again because the sieve is always leaking. And this means we live with an examined life. That means we are self-critical, not in a critical kind of way, but we're self-critical in the sense that we take a look at what we're doing. We think about what we've said and done and we go... Was that the best I could have done in my representation of Jesus in that situation? Does this all make sense to everybody? Nobody feeling condemned yet? Okay, good. All right, I'm on track. All right, so David goes on and he says, not only walking blamelessly and doing what is right, uh, but speaking truth in the heart. So if the first admonition is all about our personal internal uh, thermometer, now we're coming to these outward standards, and it, it presupposes that we know what is right and then choosing to do it even when it might be difficult. And if we don't know what is right, then we often don't even know what to do. You know, I've, I've often uh, commented that, you know, among the world, among non-believers, of course you sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It's not okay in the eyes of God, but of course this is what you do because they have no objective standard in the Word of God that tells them it's wrong. Well, just so in the church, many times Christians don't know the Word of God well enough to know what's inbounds and out of bounds, and so they wander into things that they really ought not to be involved in. And uh, you know, if you're in the healing ministry or the inner healing ministry or the deliverance ministry, you know the kind of cleanup that that can engender. But a lot of these things are actually preventable. I know that's a shocking thought, but there you go. So if we know the right, but we don't choose it, will it be of any benefit? And this idea means following externally the precepts of God unflinching, unflinchingly. And we do it because it's already become settled practice in our lives. 
Now, David's going to go on and unpack that a bit. But Jesus actually said this. We don't like to quote this part of the Sermon on the Mount too much. But he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and Pharisees were self-righteous people. So, again, we're not advocating for self-righteousness. But there is that kind of scrupulous attention to all that the Lord has given us. And I don't know how far that goes when he said, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Does it mean you won't go to heaven? I mean, it could. But I'll tell you what it does mean without any question at all. It will reduce, it will titrate, it will modulate, it will shut off the flow of kingdom life and power in your own testimony and in your own ministry. And so some people wonder, why doesn't God use me more in fill-in-the-blank ministry, prophetic, healing, deliverance, whatever? Why? Well, the answer might lie in this. I'm reminded of a time, this is a little while back, but Beth and I had moved to a house, and um, I just want to point her out. She's here this morning over there in the orange. Usually I don't get the good fortune of having my own wife in the services that I go to because I go to and fro through the earth and up and down upon it. <laughs> Somebody got it. It was meant to be a joke. And those of you who didn't get it, you need to be reading your Bible more. <clears throat> anyway, uh, so Beth and I had moved to this house, and we wanted to have some painting done. And uh, I was given the name of a painter, and so he came out and gave us an estimate. And You know, he was all about praise the Lord, brother. He saw my books, my Christian library. He was like, oh, you must be a believer. That's awesome. You know, Jesus is Lord and, you know, all this kind of... And there was just something about it didn't feel quite right. But I thought, you know, do good to all men and women, especially those who are of the household of faith. So, all right, I'll give him the contract. So wrote the deposit check, and then there was a progress payment. And partway through the job, <clears throat> he said, you know, we've had a real emergency in my family. Could you make the last payment early so that, you know, we can take care of our problem. And I'm like, well, all right, you know, don't withhold good when it's in your hand to, to give it. So <laughs> I gave the good, and in the end, he vanished. He ghosted. And uh, I had to hire another painter to finish the work. And this is diametrically opposed to what we're talking about, okay, just in case you're wondering. This is not the positive example. It's the negative example. But, but this is what we mean when we say we follow the precepts of the Lord. I mean, we should be above reproach in every way. Our business ethics, the way we speak, the things we say. And I know for some of you, you're like, oh, God, I feel like I'm back at the Baptist church, and you're laying it on thick with all this, you know, with all this religiosity. No, this belongs to us, too. Yes. It's still the same Bible, and this is still in Psalm 15, and David says it's a key component of living in the tabernacle of the Lord. So if you want the presence of God in your life, you can't, as Father Rick Thomas used to say, you'll remember this video, you cannot preach the good news and be the bad news. <laughs> All right, so David says <laughs> that... This one walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth from his or her heart. Now, this person is not only speaking truth. By the way, we should add in love. We don't just go around laying people out, running them through with the truth. But we do speak the truth. This person not only speaks the truth, but he or she does so 
because truth is flowing out of them. It's in their heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you don't have a truthful heart, if you don't have a Nathaniel heart, what did Jesus say of Nathaniel? Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no dissimulation, no guile, no deceit. And, and there's, there's a lot of that. I mean, anyone who's a pastor, you know this, Mike. Sometimes, sometimes shepherds have to run wolves off, and sometimes they just shoot them and bury the body. But there's always wolves that want to come into the church. Make sure you're not among them. Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. Outwardly they look like sheep, but inwardly they're wolves. They're not just wolves of any kind. They're hungry wolves. They're ravening wolves. And so, you know, we, we want to hold up a standard where, hey, that's not okay to be that guy or that woman, to be that wolf. Now, this can have all kinds of dimensions to it. It could run from the, the obvious of sexual predation to money issues and starting MLM schemes within the church. I probably landed a little too close with that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, all of that and more. Because we're not, here to mar- we're not here to merchandise the gospel. We're here to preach the gospel. We're here to lift up Jesus, and we're here to present a standard to the world that lets them say, those Christians really are different. They're not just like all the other people with their own unique you know, identity politics and agenda. Does that make sense? That one didn't get a very loud amen. I know I'm in conservative Orange County. So truth reflects God. In fact, the scripture calls us to be lovers of the truth. And among other things, this means, of course, no outright lies, but no exaggeration either. It ought to be the case that if people scratch below the surface of whatever we represent, whether it's on our resume, and at this moment as I say that, who I'm really thinking of is no one in this room, but Ravi Zecharias, who's now with the Lord, who conflated his resume And, of course, as all the other scandal was blowing up, they realized, oh, the whole thing was made up. Well, how how much good was ultimately done out of that as person after person after person learned that everything he stood for and represented was a sham? Does this make sense? I guess we're not supposed to speak ill of the dead, but but sometimes we we have to speak of some of the specifics. So... All of this describes the term trustworthy. And so ask yourself, am I actually a trustworthy person? And trustworthy not only means worthy of being trusted, it also means am I a safe person? Do I conduct myself with other people in a way that they don't feel threatened by me? Now, the the truth I speak might make them uncomfortable. I try to do it in a way that's not threatening, but truth is truth. But am I a safe person? There's a lot of people in the church that... They're not really safe people. And by the way, this sometimes holds them back in things like the healing ministry because people can't open up and receive from them. If you don't know what a safe person is, if you don't know uh, what that really looks like, you might get Henry Cloud and John Townsend's book, Boundaries, and just read that a bit. It'll give you some sense of what that might include. All right, let's keep going. So this fourth thing, and it's in verse verse, um, 3, He or she does not slander with his or her tongue and does no evil to his neighbor and does not take up a reproach against a friend. Well, not to slander means not to speak evil of. 
sometimes in the church we have to address particular situations. Paul did with a man who was sleeping with his uh, stepmother. Everybody go, ew. Right. Peter did with Ananias and Sapphira. So it's not that we back away from these things, but slander implies the idea of running people down in order to make ourselves look better or to head them off at the pass uh, to block them. And if anything marks modern American politics, this one does. And I would suggest to you that we need to rise above that. And that includes, by the way, now I'm going to get, this one is going to land pretty close. When we back our politicians, we pick people who actually know how to bridle their tongue and not speak things that are out of order. And if we still like that politician's policies, start a letter-writing campaign to said politician and say, hey, I like you and what you stand for. I don't like the way you stand for it. Knock it off and become an honorable person. Because we need to hold those who represent us to a higher standard. Does that make sense? All right. I remember when I was working for John Wimber, you know, but well, well in the last millennium. And uh, nobody got that. <laughs> I was working for John Wimber, and one morning he came into the office, and his face was wet. And I said, John, what's wrong? And he said, uh, I've just been listening to what they've been saying about me on the radio. And, you know, there were certain people, we'll leave them unnamed, but many of you would know who they were. And they really went after John hard. And the thing that was most grievous of all was that none of it was true. This is what slander is. So before you open up that thing, that can of worms, I really suggest you fact check the facts that you think are right to make sure they're facts. Because there is a lot of urban legend out there. And I would add, I think it's gotten worse because of social media. 90% of what goes around on Facebook and Instagram TV and all the rest of it is nonsense and you'd do better to spend your time reading the Word or working in the warehouse or being on the healing teams or just doing a good job at work. Now, I'm talking about a standard of righteousness here that all Christians can subscribe to because I'm after that unity thing and I'm also talking about how do we live, live in the realm of God such that we have the abiding presence of the Spirit. So as I'm going through these things, you should be going, oh, check, check. No, I don't have that one. I'm okay there. I'm okay there. But, oh, there's another one. So this becomes kind of like the annual checkup of, I don't know, your car, or you go to your doctor, and he's checking your body, right? All right, so this idea of slander um, is on the list. And then right in the same verse, verse 3, this individual also does no evil to his or her neighbor, Romans 12.18 says we're to live at peace with all men and women, bearing goodwill with no malice. Now sometimes, of course, people are going to do bad things to us, but we're not to return spite for spite. We're to turn the other cheek. And I, I fear, my friends, I don't know how true it is in, in here in Orange County. I don't have a good sense of it in Orange County. But I can tell you as I've journeyed through states like Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas and Tennessee, there's a lot of venom in the body of Christ. And, and people are not turning the other cheek. And then they wonder, why does our witness have no credibility? And it's because people are used to seeing that from non-believers. They're looking for something different. Does this make sense? Okay. So we live at peace with everybody, and nobody needs to look over this individual's shoulder 
when around him or her. They don't need to wonder whether what they're saying about others present when they're not present. Which This is back to the idea of trustworthiness and integrity. That the way we interact with somebody face to face is the same way we interact about them when they're not even in the room. They're not even in the same state. It's gotten really quiet, so I guess we're landing close to the mark. And then this one, also in verse 3, this individual does not reproach his or her friend. John G. Lake is a name that many of you would know. Um, He's kind of a standard read in the world of renewal and healing. Um, I loved John G. Lake. I discovered him working for John Wimber years ago, about 40 years ago, uh, before he was a thing at like Bethel School or wherever. Um, But he's just one of those enduring characters. But one thing many people don't know about John G. Lake is he had a ministry partner, and they preached and traveled together, you know, like an apostolic team. You know, Peter and Andrew and James and John, Jesus sent them out in pairs. Well, he had a friend named Tom Hesmelhalk. And uh, so they had powerful ministry together, many accomplishments and exploits in God. And at a certain point, Tom Hesmelhalk turned against him. And um, he wrote a sermon out of Jeremiah 8, excuse me, Jeremiah 9, Jeremiah 9, um, about what had happened with Tom Hesmelhalk. And Jeremiah 9 opens up and says, Oh, that my head were a fountain of tears, that I could weep for the sins of my people. And this is how John Lake essentially went through inner healing. They didn't have that back then. So it was kind of him and God processing through the scripture. But as he, as he grieved the loss of his friend who had turned against him and become his greatest detractor uh, because he had been reproached without cause. And I can think of people I've known along the way and some of them uh, some of them had, I would just say, very sharp tongues. And uh, I'm looking at Stan Frisbee down here in the second row, and his brother Lonnie doesn't need any introduction, but there was, I remember Lonnie, when he was alive, pointing out certain people in our fellowship at, when it was Vineyard Yorbelinda slash Vineyard Anaheim, and Lonnie would say, see that guy, he's going to be a 90-second wonder. And it was because of this. It was because of this. And so I really want to encourage you to, to mind this thing carefully. We, we don't talk enough about the tongue, but James even says an entire forest is set on fire by the tongue. And part of this business of living in realms of God is we become healing people, not people who are tearing others down. And sometimes, even when we know things are going on, love covers a multitude of sins. Is this making sense? All right, then David goes on and he says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Now, obviously, if you're going to live a life in this world, you're going to come up against vile and disgusting people. You just are. I mean, I used to work in Newport Beach, and I ran into my fair share of those people. I used to make jokes about Nick Newport. There was no Nick Newport, but he was a sort of a paradigmatic individual who was always on the make, drove the sports car, you know, tanned, getting after every woman he could, or man, depended, but whatever. 
you know, he, he probably worked in financial services and would do anything to lift money out of your account in an unethical way, but he would skip town before the regulators found out. That was Nick Newport, and I'm sure you Nick Newport is still around. <laughs> so, um, but when, when this says this person despises the vile person, this isn't complete separation from the world because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, and I'm not going to turn there, I'm just going to reference it, but he says, I'm not telling you to disengage completely with non-believers because if you did, you would have to go out of the world. <laughs> so Paul got it 2,000 years ago. We get it today. You can't completely disengage with these people, but here's what you can do. You can refuse to adopt their values and their practices. You can choose not to be a Nick Newport or if you're a woman, Nancy Newport, right? It is a refusal to entertain uh, things that are disgusting and foul and filthy in the mind of God. And I think sometimes Christians will laugh at jokes just to make it appear they're not holier than thou. But there, there are some things that shouldn't be laughed at because they're, they're just fundamentally wrong. And yet people make jokes about them. This is what comedians do. And I might add that I think somewhere in all that is this thing that happened at the Oscars. Because it's totally inappropriate to mock somebody because of their medical condition. But, you know, anything to make a buck and be funny, well, it didn't land too well, did it? And yet, again, we can't be those people. We're called to live higher. And if we will make that our objective, the Lord will assist us in doing so. There are plenty of funny things that we can laugh at without resorting to things like this. And so this piece of the psalm is speaking of mannerisms and the conversation and lifestyle of the unredeemed. And, and I'll, I'll go a little further with this and just say that I think in the last 20 years, because of the emergence of the megachurch phenomenon, we became so interested in trying to attract those who don't know the Lord that we'll try to be like them. And so really what we created was a Christian culture where people would show up and they would flange their Christianity on to their worldly lifestyle and we'd say, well, it's okay because Jesus understands and it was all done at the cross. Instead of calling people to forsake all of that unrighteousness and to live in the realms of God. And where did that take us? Well, the megachurch thing kind of, it ran its course, but like Lonnie's 90-second wonder, maybe this one was a 90-minute wonder, but the whole megachurch thing has kind of gone into eclipse, and we realized that out of it all, we didn't really raise disciples. We didn't really raise a community of faith that was world-changing, and in fact, on the watch of that kind of thinking is when we lost the high ground of American culture, and America became a post-Christian culture, and no longer, yeah... So, you know, you may not be leading a megachurch, although, Mike, you're on your way with this congregation. <laughs> you may not be leading a megachurch, but you can think locally. You can act locally. Make it real in your life and make it, make it the, the congregational ethic of this church or wherever you go to church when you normally are there if you came here to hear me this morning. But, but anyway, um, we, we want to be people who have eschewed all of that. And David says she honors those who fear God, or he honors those who fear God. Well, that means that their closest associates and companions 
are people of like precious faith. And that should go without saying, but I'm always amazed at the Christians I bump into who say, oh yeah, my best friends are like all of these unsaved people. And they always want to make it sound like they're doing this redemptively, but what I typically see is that the unsaved friends are pulling them down rather than them pulling the unredeemed up. So be sure of who's influencing whom. And honor those who fear the Lord. Honor them maybe with verbal affirmation, possibly financial gifts if that's appropriate. It may not be appropriate. Um, but, but make your closest associates people that you, know, you, are, you are growing together in faith with them. And then this one that I love, uh, also in verse 4, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now what this means is that this individual will stand by his or her word even to his or her own detriment. My grandparents taught me this long before I ever knew this verse was here, but they said, you stand by your word. Your word is your bond. And going back to my story of the painter who skipped out on us, what he should have done is even to his own detriment finish that job. It should be obvious, but just to make it clear. And I might add to that, you know, when I was in business, there was more than one time when, you know, we would negotiate a contract and things would change. And as the world says, well, things change. And so there would be a desire on the part of our management team to renege on the contract. And I became the conscience of the company. I said, we can't do that. We gave our word. Our brand is integrity. And so even if we end up underwater on this or the profit is less than we anticipated, we still need to honor the contract that we made. Now for a lot of you that are individual like entrepreneurs and sole proprietors, this really hits home. And right next to it are the admonitions in Scripture about dishonest weights and measures. If you sell people a gallon of something, give them a full gallon, 64 ounces, not 63, thinking, well, I'll just shave off the one ounce. Is a gallon 64 or 128? 128. So you, can, you think you're going to shave off the one ounce and so you've got 127 ounces, but little by little that adds up. The Lord calls that dishonest weights and measures. And if you're doing that kind of thing, do you know what you're going to end up with? You are not going to live in the realms of God. Your spirituality is going to founder eventually. It may not happen immediately because God is merciful and he's patient. He'll give you multiple opportunities to set it right and get back on track. He will. But eventually he'll pull the string and say, that's it, you're done. And then your business will fail, or the regulators will come after you, or your customers will walk away, or, 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 or. So standing by our word, even to our own detriment, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything other than this comes from the evil one. It doesn't come from evil. It's coming from Satan himself. So you, people say, I don't understand why my life is a wreck and why I've got this disease. Well, maybe you opened the door to Satan with your lips. All right, keep moving. <laughs> I remember talking with a guy down in San Diego who was, he had a big contracting business, many, many millions of dollars of income, very wealthy guy. And we were talking about this psalm at a, at a breakfast, a men's breakfast. And so there weren't many guys there, but I was just kind of walking through some of these concepts. And he just looked at me and he said, do you realize how much this is going to cost me to set these things right? I said, no, I actually don't, but it, apparently it's a lot. He goes, do I really need to do this? I said, it depends on what it's worth to you to walk with God. So he actually went forward, and by the time he settled it all out and fixed it, it cost him about two and a half million bucks. 
but he did it. And you know what happened? His entire life revolutionized. What we do tangibly affects who we are spiritually, and we're looking for things that all Christians can line up behind. This should, I don't care if you're Catholic or Orthodox. I don't care if you're Pentecostal or charismatic. I don't care if you're a liberal mainstream Protestant. This should be the way we live, always. All right, and then it goes on, and it says, this person does not charge excessive interest. Now, the, the taking of interest in usury is a very interesting conversation we're not going to get into. It's a big topic, and it would shoot us well past the end point of this sermon, which is in about five minutes. Uh, so I'm not going to go there, but I will just say this. When we charge excessive interest, God, first of all, God's not opposed to our making a fair return on our business. The workman is worthy of his hire. And that's not just true of preachers. That's true of everybody. If you're doing good work and rendering a fair service or product, you should be compensated for that. All right, that's done. Now, God's not opposed to our making a fair return in our business, but he is opposed to our taking advantage of other people. And that is the problem, because when it's talking about excessive interest, do you know who the people are who take payday loans and on auto loans on their cars? People who are down on their luck where we could easily take advantage of people. And so you want to be careful in your dealings with folks that you don't take advantage of them. It seems fairly obvious, but it's not always. I remember one time I was working in New York. I was on Wall Street, and I um, had a job on the trading desk of Bankers Trust, which at the time was one of the two largest market makers in government securities and foreign exchange in the world. Now Bankers Trust is part of Deutsche Bank, the, the German bank. But anyway, um, we, had a, we had a guy phone in, and he had some Lebanese pounds that he wanted to sell. This was in 1982, and the Israeli army had invaded Lebanon, and you know, the world was in chaos. And they were after the, the Palestine Liberation Organization, so that was why they'd invaded. And they had them pinned down in Beirut. Of course, the UN was passing resolutions, and you know, rockets are flying and missiles and the Navy blockaded Beirut from the sea and it was a mess. And so this guy calls in and he's got a bunch of Lebanese pounds that he wants to offload and my boss overhears me talking with this guy on the phone about his Lebanese pounds and she signals to me to click off and these phones all had a little button in the middle of the handset and you did that and they couldn't hear you, you muted out. So I, I clicked out and I, and I looked at her, and she goes, mark it down by 50%. And I said, why? And she says, because we can. And I said, but the Lebanese pound is backed by gold, and all of the gold is on deposit in Zurich. We can sell the pound short, liquidate the gold on Monday. We have no risk of loss. She said, nevertheless, mark it down 50%. She was taking advantage of the situation. It's called profiteering if you want to use a stronger word. And I said to her, I can't do that. If we're going to make that price, you've got to make the price. Needless to say, that did not put me in good stead with my boss. But she knew that I couldn't be bought. And I'm not saying it to make myself sound good. I'm just saying I've lived these realities, what I'm preaching to you. And I'm giving you illustrations of what it looks like when you're on the firing line trying to live in the realm of God which is what we are called to do in a tough world. And then finally David says, this individual, man or woman, does not take bribes to render judgment against the innocent. This is in verse 5. 
And so this person knows that the truth is the truth. It's not for sale. Can't be bought, can't be sold. And it is, it's right next to it. It's not the same thing, but it's right next to the idea of true and authentic justice, which also cannot be bought or sold. And I think we've seen enough in the last couple of years to know that in many ways and in many formats, <clears throat> all of this is for sale. You may not be a magistrate in a courtroom, but wherever you are, you make decisions every day. So within the sphere, within the realm that you've been assigned, you can live this way too. Uh, and it will get people's attention. Again, maybe not always in the best way. My boss and I had a fraught relationship after that experience with the Lebanese pounds in New York. But right behind this is the idea that we don't harm others for personal gain. And so with that, we don't treat those maybe whom we do not know. We don't treat them as somehow worthy of less protection or less honor than our own friends and benefactors. Jesus kind of addressed this tangentially when he said, you know, if you salute your own friends on the street, how are you any different than the scribes and Pharisees? And so we're really looking to bring a wider sphere of what is true and right everywhere we go, and we run into these kinds of decisions every day in the workplace. Well, here's how David ends it after all that. He says, if you do these ten things, you will never be moved. You'll never leave the realm of God. You will carry the presence of God with you. You will be in solidarity with other believers who understand that these are the basic core operative lifestyle issues of a true follower of the Lord. And you will dwell in God's presence. You will live in God's house, and the hand of the Lord will be with you. So in this season where, as I said, there's a lot of disparate things starting to swirl around uh, a swirl around in Christianity in many ways seems like it's in decline. George Barna reported last year at Easter, so about a year ago, uh, that in 1999, the start of the new millennium, 70%, 7-0, almost three quarters of people in America had a church that they called their own. That was in 1999. But last year, heading into Easter, one year ago, that 70% had declined to 47%. That's about a one percentage point decline per year. If we're still on track with that, it might be 46 this year. Who knows? It might even be 45. And so we are in need of a, of a true and authentic lifestyle of Christianity because you may not always be able to do signs and wonders in the office, but you can always live righteously in the realm of God. And with that, people will know there's something different about this person. And sooner or later, it will lead to conversations. And it will give you the moral authority to speak to them about their lives and summon them to a faith in Jesus. Well, the scripture says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And with that, I'll close the service. All right.